This is a book about the recent past. It is based on the premise that we can better understand the present by examining the past, which is the only data source we have about how the world works. It is also based on the premise that the most important developments take time to unfold. When asked two centuries after the event whether the French Revolution was a good thing, Chinese Prime Minister Zhao Enlai replied that it was too soon to tell. This book starts with the French Revolution of 1789 and the roughly contemporary Industrial Revolution in Britain, and examines how a global economy emerged and how it has affected our lives. As a unifying theme, it takes the French revolutionary mantra, Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, arguing that the century after peace was established in Europe in 1815 was the age when liberty was central, both in politics and in economics. The 19th century illustrated how levels of economic prosperity could be multiplied at unprecedented rates by a combination of technical change and capital formation driven by market signals in an appropriate institutional setting. The 20th century was dominated by alternative visions of how to share the fruits of economic prosperity within and between countries, and this book centers on the age of equality. Whether the 21st century will be the age of fraternity is an open question, but in a world with weapons of mass destruction, the alternative is likely to be grim. Attaching three simple concepts to three centuries is, of course, a gross simplification of the complexity of history, but some organization is essential. Others have different organizing principles. A popular approach, used for example by Broadbury and O'Rourke, breaks the 20th century into a sequence of globalization to 1914, deglobalization between 1914 and 1950, and reglobalization after 1950. The transitions in this sequence, however, are best explained by systemic responses. Whether communism or fascism, or the ultimate winner, open market-based economies with welfare states, to the challenge posed by unprecedented productive potential and the unacceptable degree of associated inequality. Characterizing the 20th century as the age of equality is intended to capture the main driving force behind long-term economic evolution in the 1900s. I am definitely not claiming that it was a century of equality. Indeed, apart from the 1917 revolution in Russia, Actual steps toward reducing inequality within and across nations only gathered serious momentum in the second half of the century. Even in the final decades of the century, there were diverging patterns. Rapid growth in China, India, and other emerging market economies was reducing inequality of outcomes globally. At the same time, in some of the richest countries, incomes were becoming more unequal as the global economy provided massive rewards to some innovators and financiers, and the income gap between more highly educated and less skilled workers widened. Education is available to all, but not all citizens benefit equally. At the end of the age of equality, we live in a world in which the distribution of wealth is far from equal. In 2010, three billion individuals, more than two-thirds of the world's adult population, had net assets worth under $10,000, 
while the $24 million millionaires accounted for less than 1% of the global adult population, but owned more than a third of the world's household wealth. Of these millionaires, 41% lived in the United States, 32% in Europe, 10% in Japan, 4% in Canada, 3% in China, 3% in Australia, and 7% in the rest of the world. Capgemini, with a narrower definition, that is, a million dollars of investable assets, excluding the home, estimated about 10 million millionaires, of whom 3.1 million lived in the United States, 3 million in Europe, and 3 million in the Asia-Pacific region. In the United States, books titled Richistan and Superclass became bestsellers.